It's episode 8 of the Generation Zen Podcast, and this is a really special episode. Now, Jeremy is with me right now, but Jeremy, we recorded an interview with Tommy Tellerico. Yeah, we, um, I'm not the guest this time. We actually have a very special guest, not that I'm not special, of course. But um, <laughs> You're the co-host this time. <laughs> yeah, I'm co-hosting on this really awesome, exciting interview with a legend in the gaming industry. He talked about... Everything from his background in the gaming industry to video games live to the Amico to giving advice on success. And what we're going to do is we're going to split this episode into multiple parts. So we'll divide it based off of the topics he was talking about for you guys to enjoy. And even though it's it's one of our longer episodes, it's probably one of the the times probably going to go the fastest because I certainly couldn't tell while we were interviewing him that we went on for two and a half hours because he's such an engaging speaker. Oh, me either. Yeah. He, he was in such detail for everything from the video games live to talking about his cousin uh, from Aerosmith. It was so cool. So we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And again, thank you so much to Tommy Tellerico for coming on. It means so much that such a legend in the gaming industry would want to come on our show. And we just started the show and to have a, have such a icon in the gaming industry come on for only the eighth episode in means so much to us so thank you guys for tuning in and jeremy thanks again for co-hosting dude it was great yeah of course all right enjoy guys So Tommy Tellerico is joining us in the show, and Tommy, thank you so much again for doing this. We really, really appreciate it, and we're excited to have you on. If you could give us a brief background on who you are and your experience in the gaming industry and all that fun stuff. Sure. Uh, I've been in the game industry over 30 years. Um, I... Uh, I... I have the Guinness World Record for the person who's worked on the most video games in their lifetime. Uh, my mother's very proud. And, and uh, my, my dad always said, all those quarters I gave you growing up finally paid off. Um, but uh, some of the games that, um, that I've uh, been involved with uh, in you know, helping to uh, create and contribute to are... Uh, stuff like Earthworm Jim, Disney's Aladdin, um, Tony Hawk Pro Skater, the original one, um, the original uh, Guitar Hero games I was involved with, um, Metroid Prime. I worked on that game with uh, Shigeru Miyamoto for about five years. Um, I was the first American hired to, to be on the Sonic team, which was pretty cool. Wow. Um, I didn't know that one. That's awesome. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. And, oh, I got some great Sonic stories. Um, and uh, I mean, everything from, you know, the early Madden football games to uh, Mortal Kombat and Blitz football and a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm only mentioning the good ones. And uh, there was a lot of bad ones as well, but I'm not going to bring those up so, <laughs> so but if anyone ever wants to check out color a dinosaur on the nes i will uh you know i will bow my head in shame um but anyway so uh yeah and then you know i primarily um my roles you know in the early days everybody used to do everything right so my primary role was you know audio director sound designer 
composer musician. Um, but again, back then, you know, everybody did a little bit of design and everybody, you know, contributed to, you know, creating characters and the way they were and or levels and 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 things like that. Um, but then in the in the mid '90s, I uh, uh, was on a television show. Um, with uh, I was a co-writer, co-producer, and uh, host of a show called uh, Worldwide Syndicated Video Game Magazine Television Show called The Electric Play- Play- Playground, and uh, that then sh- uh, brought another show, um, branched off another show from that called Reviews on the Run. Of course, it was known in the U.S. as Judgment Day. So we were doing two half-hour weekly shows. And uh, I did that for 12 years and uh, we won Emmy awards and telly awards and things like that. Um, And it was the first, you know, syndicated worldwide syndicated video game television show, which was pretty cool. I started nonprofit organizations for the video game industry, including the game audio network guild, um, which is a, uh, a huge nonprofit. Now there's over 2,500 members across like 40, two countries i think and uh it's for people who want to get in the video game industry as a composer audio person sound designer so that was something that i that i uh founded and launched about 18 or 19 years ago and of course uh, 18 years ago i also started video games live which is the worldwide touring symphony show uh, all based around video games. I did the first show at the Hollywood Bowl uh, with the LA Philharmonic and I invited all my friends out to it. So, you know, we had all the executives from Nintendo had flown down and uh, Yuji Naka, creator of Sonic the Hedgehog, flew out from Japan. Hideo Kojima, my buddy, flew out from Japan to be at that first show. I had the creators of Tron there, Steve Lissenberger. And, and, oh, uh, that's awesome. Everyone from uh, uh, Nolan Bushnell, you know, the founder of Atari, to uh, to the whole Blizzard team and Halo team. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I know we yeah, saw the video was, on YouTube of you playing the Halo theme song on the guitar. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and there, actually yeah. that first show, I played it with uh, Steve Vai was on stage with me as well too so oh really that wow yeah. that's awesome and then i we also saw that you play the uh the pokemon theme with the original uh singer yeah yeah jason page is a very dear friend of mine and uh, yeah if anyone wants to see some fun stuff put in video games live jason page in in youtube and you'll see me and him just you know traveling around the world playing the gotta catch them all theme with a symphony it's it's pretty cool in fact we did a remix of the song with a very famous uh remixer who's a good friend of mine he's, he's called the fat rat so if you go on youtube i've actually heard some the, of his music yeah 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 i mean his music i mean you know he puts out a song in like 80 million views you know like it's crazy but you put out uh you go into YouTube, put in the fat rat and Pokemon, and you'll hear the song that me, him, and Jason Page did uh, last year. It, got, it has like a, it got like a million views the first day or something. But it's, so it's a Pokemon, hard rock, Pokemon, symphony, electronic remix. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, we, I got to check that out. I, I fat, just opened yeah. it up to listen to later. <laughs> okay, cool. And it has like a million views, Jeremy? 
Uh yeah, right now it's at one million four hundred eighteen thousand. So good for you, Todd. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, and so and then of course uh, about three years ago I became CEO and president of Intellivision and kind of re you know re found and structured uh, the company Intellivision to create uh, a brand new video game console coming out this year called Amico. So, Tommy, real quick, right before we get into Amico, because I do want to ask this, because I didn't know this, but I was listening to Review Tech USA in your live stream, which was excellent, by the way. I listened the whole three or four oh, hours cool. of it. The whole it seven great. hours. The no, whole no. seven, <laughs> yeah. However long it was, I listened the whole thing. And I didn't realize that you were cousins with Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Yes. So, yeah. if yeah. you don't mind me asking, how did your video games live, was that in any way influenced by your cousin and his performances? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, in a couple ways, you know, the, so, you know, when you're, when you're growing up and you're eight years old and you're sitting at a side of a stage at the Boston gardens, uh, and cousin Steven is, you know, performing in front of 30,000 people. Um, you don't, you don't really think of it as like an impossible dream or an impossible job. You know, it's just like, Oh, that's, Oh, that's cousin Steven. And, and wow, that looks like he's having fun and that's a fun job. So that's what I want to be when I grow up, you know? So, it, so one of the, one of the things is that, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes when they grow up, they think of like, they want to be something or they want to do something, but, but, you know, so many people in their lives or whatever, tell them, Oh, that's impossible. And don't set your sights so high on things, you know, like, it's like a bummer that, that when people do that to, to other folks but my situation was always the opposite where my parents and grandparents always always told me look you can be whatever you want to be and and never take no for an answer and you know um you'll always be successful if you're doing something you love and so so you know having that connection to steven and seeing him on stage and i've told him this many times um you know, it just, it, it gave me this confidence. Like I never thought that it wasn't a difficult thing because I saw him doing it, you know? And then the other thing about video games live is that, um, you know, I never wanted to do like just a boring symphony show. Right. And so I probably shouldn't say that, but, but the reality is, is that, <laughs> you know, most symphony shows that I go to, you know, cause I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties with rock concerts and sure. TV videos and, you know, it was a much different time. And, um, you know, so it's like when, when somebody my age goes to a symphony show, somebody who grew up on video games and kind of that MTV generation, um, you know, it's like, everybody be quiet. The music's going to begin and let's turn all the lights up and ready. Okay. On your mark, it's echo. And so, you know, being around Aerosmith my entire life and going to rock concerts, whether it was Van Halen or, uh, you know, whoever, but um, that excitement and that energy is something that I wanted to carry over into video games live. Um, and, and before I even did my first show, I, you know, I spent time with Steven telling him what I wanted to do and, you know, asking his advice about certain things. And he gave me great advice about a lot of things, especially in regards to like business stuff and who to trust and who not to trust. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say from an excitement level standpoint, 
you know, that the reason video games live is like a cross between a live symphony and a rock concert is you know inf heavily influenced by by steven tyler <laughs> when you were talking to steven was he like you want you guys want to do a concert based off video games like he's was he kind of like confused or like puzzled by that or no, was he really like yeah you guys are gonna do great people want to hear this no nah, yeah he was like high five and like dude he goes he goes no one's ever done anything like this he goes that is so tellerico yeah, <laughs> yeah so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's, uh, you know, we, 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 we kind of have this funny thing, uh, you know, all, we say it's, it's terrific, uh, <laughs> just, you know, kind of joking around with each yeah, other and yeah, of course. or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's tellerific. Um, and so, uh, no, no, he, he's, he follows my career for a very long time. And whenever I do a new album or a soundtrack, I'd send it to him and, and I'd get a call from him, like, you know, like, dude, I'm just listening to your soundtrack. It's so freaking amazing. Oh my God. And, and actually he used some of my music to open up one of their tours once. So oh, no this, way. I yeah, didn't know that. One of my wow. songs was the first awesome. opening thing that you heard, you know, and he would come on stage and the, 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 um, it would be the, uh, the, uh, uh, there was a curtain over the stage and then he would you would see his uh you would see his uh shadow come in and 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 my music was playing and then boom they'd throw the curtains down and bam go in the you know whatever big opening tune they were doing in that night or whatever that's so, so that cool. was pretty cool you know um so yeah he's always known about video game music and how amazing it was so you know when i said i want you know wanted to do a show he's like hell yeah you do you know, <laughs> yeah, rock and roll. And, it, and it's great because I'll sometimes text him or call him from locations like that Aerosmith had played like a month later or a month. Oh, they'll be there in a month from now or something, you know, and and uh, sometimes I'll leave little trinkets behind or <laughs> you know, uh, right. say, hey, guess where I'm at? And I'll, I'll take a picture of, you know, in, in the uh, in the dressing room or whatever or, or from on stage. So it's, yeah, it's pretty fun. I, I got to say, uh, I, I I probably win the category of coolest cousin in the world. I, I don't know of anyone who could who could uh, possibly uh, match me on that. I would think so, <laughs> right, Jeremy? I don't know anyone else. It sounds like you guys have a really awesome relationship too. So it's it's not just like oh, I am related to this guy. It's like you guys are really close and you yeah, no, because yeah, because we're such into the music thing. And and you know, one of the things. Uh, I mean, I don't mind talking about it publicly, but one of one of the things, you know, like like I never asked Stephen for help, ever, like in the music industry for money, like nothing, zero, like in regards to like getting up. I, I'd ask him his, his advice because uh, he always told me, look, you you know, ask me anything. Um, but in regards to like, hey, can you call so and so to get me? It was never like that. I always did everything on my own, and 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 he would like you know, kind of bust my balls over it. He's like, dude, come on, let me help you out. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to do this on my own and this and that. And so I think, you know, he always respected, respected me for that, that I kind of made it on my own. I wasn't trying to ride off of his coattails or anything like, I mean, it sounds like I am now because I'm talking about it, but I didn't bring it up in my bio. You guys asked me the question. <laughs> right. That's the only reason I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about it, you know? So I just don't want to come across like that, but, but yeah, um, no, you're not. You're all good, Tommy. Definitely not. Yeah. 
kind of now shifting gears to the Intelligent Amico, which me and Jeremy had a recent podcast discussion about before, and, and we're really excited. We think it's a very interesting console. How did you shift from doing video games live to being the CEO of a gaming company? Well, you know, uh, again, you know, all of the games that I've been involved with 30 years of my career, there was always design and production. And, you know, that was always a part of anyone who worked, you know, who worked in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. You, you wore a bunch of hats. I mean, you know, I would I would be the game tester the producer and I would write the manual for the game. <laughs> you know, like, you know, <laughs> wow, just, you wrote the manuals. Yeah. You do design, you do level design. I did music, you know, every, but, but that wasn't, a, that wasn't anything that wasn't uncommon back then. A lot of people wore a lot of different hats, you know, now, of course, it's almost unheard of except for indie developers. You know, you get an indie development team of like four or five people, you know, the programmer, the designer, like everybody's pitching in, you know, everybody's pitching in. Um, so, uh, you know, but the, I think, you know, and in television was my machine growing up. That was my, you know, that was when I think of in television, you know, I get tears in my eyes and I get goosebumps because I, I think about my childhood and my playing with my mom and my dad and my younger brother and, you know, uh, my friends. And it was just, you know, it's, it's a, t- I'm sure you guys, you know, uh, how old are you guys? Uh, we're at 22. Okay. 22. So, so we're in the generation Z slash millennial generation. So, yes. so, so what was your machine growing up? Was it like super Nintendo PlayStation? Like what was, what, what's the machine when you were a kid that gives you fond memories of gaming? For me, it personally, it's the GameCube. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'd say that. GameCube and like the first PlayStation are my two first consoles. So, so amazing. You guys make me feel so old. Our fondest gaming memories are playing Super Smash Brothers, you know, in the afternoon, go. going to each other's house, playing four players. Those are and Mario Kart Double Dash. Yeah. I mean, you've probably heard me say in other interviews, which is, you know, think back of your fondest gaming memories. And I always say, I guarantee it was when you were with other people. I guarantee it was a coach couch co-op experience. And now do you guys, and, and you're younger guys, and this is, this is great. And this is why I really was excited to, to talk to you guys, because, you know, a lot of times when I do interviews, it's mostly like, you know, like a lot of the retro community, loves to you know love loves to discuss you know uh, in television and all that stuff because they remember it when they were kids or their older brother had it or whatever um and then we also talk to a lot of like you know parents and young kids but but folks in your age group it's really interesting to me and i really really want to i'm going to be asking you guys questions <laughs> absolutely um, Feel free. Is, is that is is that you know typically when you and and you guys probably know you guys have probably seen it right like like a lot of like hardcore elitist gamers like trash the system right because they're so focused on like xbox playstation or pc gaming or you know maybe they're big nintendo switch fanboys or whatever um and so like people like trash us because we're not on that same level and and by the way, no kidding. I've never said that we're trying to compete with Xbox, PlayStation, or, or Switch. Yeah, we mentioned that in our podcast episode. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, we're something that's completely different. We want to take a completely different path. So it's so refreshing to me to, to, to hear folks that are your age that are, that get it as well to say, ah, you know what, you know, this, this is something that, that I think I'm going to be interested in. So that, so that's, that makes me feel really great guys. I gotta tell you what we really respect about uh, you and intelligent as a whole is that your console isn't crowdfunded. It's not, nope. <laughs> it's not kickstartered. No, no, Indiegogo. it's all internally funded. So there's no reason why you guys would be afraid to rip us off or trying to con us when it's not exactly. even a Kickstarter. Yeah. To- yeah that's totally. one thing that we really respected about the whole process too. Like you have a, a new vision you have, you're trying to target this new market. You're not, you're not trying to compete with these, like these mainstream consoles. You're trying to come up with your own style. And that's one thing I really respected a lot. I, I appreciate that. And, and that's really the goal, right? From the beginning, look, I've done, if you put in my name in Kickstarter or Video Games Live in Kickstarter, you'll see five, six projects, I think, very successful music projects. So like if anyone could have done a very successful Kickstarter for Intellivision, it would have been me, you know, like like I've raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter just doing music, you know? And so, um but but i didn't want this project to be like that so you know in in a lot of ways i say well would nintendo do a kickstarter would would sony do a kickstarter of course they wouldn't you know know, and i want to be you know again although we're not competing with them i would like to be you know eventually respected on the same level i'd like to be like you know in that same category as Oh wow, it's a successful video game system. Yeah, that Intellivision Amico, you know, in 2020 when it came out and it sold tens of millions of units after that or whatever, you know, like so to be to be in that category and I'm like, you know, I I don't want and of course all of the negativity because there were so many video game consoles that have tried to kickstart and tried to Indiegogo and some were successful. I mean, you know, people can make fun of the Ouya all they want. And, but the reality is, you know, they raised $8 million on Kickstarter. They raised an additional $40 million, I think, uh, from, from venture capitalists. The thing did come out. They delivered the product. It was out in retail and I think, uh, you know, I mean, there's rumors online where they sold about a million consoles at the end of the day. Um, so, hey, you know what? Kudos to them. It's a hard thing to do. Um, I think the wrong people were running it. You know, I think the people who were running it weren't game creators. They weren't game makers. They weren't in the industry for 20, 30, 40 years and understood all of everything about the industry and development and the games and the hardware and, you know, this and that. And that's where in television has a huge difference of everything that's out there. Just on our executive team, we have over 600 years experience and you guys are going to read a press release. I hope you're, everybody's joined up to our mailing list and televisionamico.com. Join the mailing list. We are putting out a press release next week that is absolutely mic drop moment, gonna blow people away. Really? About, about who has just come on board. 
as our managing director of Intellivision. I mean, this person is an absolute industry legend that everybody knows. Um, they have their own Wikipedia page. That's how cool they are. Um, but this is somebody who has, you know, created amazing things in the industry and people are just going to be blown away. And so that's the kind of level of talent that, that, you know, that we're attracting. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I just, I didn't want it to be a kickstart. I want it to be different. I wanted, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to, uh, go that route. So many people, if, you know, and you see the Atari VCS now, right? I mean, Indiegogo campaign raised $3 million. And and by the way, what the hell, you can't make a console for $3 million. Who the no. hell are they? <laughs> and the what specs are, on that are, are underpowered compared to the original Xbox One when it first came out in 2013. Yeah. I mean, I, again, you know, I, I wish them well. I, I, I never want to wish any console or because i know how tough it is right so i you know i i i hope they come out i hope the backers are happy um and i hope uh i hope atari does succeed so that i can kick their ass <laughs> 20, all those years later <laughs> 29 years later <laughs> but yeah exactly you'll for, look look here's the deal oh, full circle full circle atari <laughs> has kicked our ass for 40 years let's be honest right I mean, in television was a thing, but we were, we were only 20%. Now the 20% of the market is huge. That's like the Xbox is now. Right. So, so, you know, in television had 20% of the market, we were doing $500 million a year back in the early eighties, which is the equivalent of about $1.4 billion today. We had 1800 employees worldwide. I mean, we were legit. And the thing to understand guys is that back then, in the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of people don't under, understand this unless you were alive back then. It was a very different time. These were like the first, you know, like the first generation of machines were like in the 70s. And those were basically all like Pong ripoffs, right? Generation two started with like, you know, um, Odyssey 2, Atari, uh, Fairchild Channel F, Intellivision, ColecoVision. Um, and it, it kind of, I th and I think I got the order about right chronologically there. I wasn't trying to, but I think I just, I was just doing it in my head. But, but the thing to remember guys is that back then no one had two video game consoles ever, right? Like if you're a hardcore gamer now, you probably have two or three, maybe four or five older systems as well but you probably have multiple systems, right? Maybe yeah, like for me, I have an Xbox One, a Switch, and I play on PC. So there's three systems right oh, there. There you go. And you probably have your old end GameCube. Yep, maybe got the Wii, yeah, the Wii. Yeah, all the retro stuff too on top See, of the new stuff. back then, the industry was brand new. And like, if, if you were lucky enough to have one video game console, you would never have two. And so, so... Even though in television, you know, so why was in television 20% and Atari was 80% of the market? Well, a lot of that was due to the fact that a television was over a hundred to $150 more than Atari. It was almost twice the price. It was the equivalent of about seven to $800 today. 
Imagine buying a console for seven hundred dollars today. Well, you might have to if the Xbox Series <laughs> X don't get your shit together. Yeah, we'll but, see. Um, That's true. Sure. No. <laughs> With this COVID shit going around, you know, yeah. components are going up, memory is going up. Trust me, I know. I deal with it every day. <laughs> right. Um, but and and so so that's the thing to remember is that, but just because people didn't own as many in televisions, you always had a kid in the neighborhood who had one. And so what we would do in the old days is like like I only had an in television. I didn't have an Atari. But we would play Atari all the time because my friends had them and you'd go over to your friend's house. And then my friends came over to my house and they all played in television. So, so it, you know, it, it was a very different time back then. But um, yeah, so, you know, and, and but to answer your original question about, you know, how, like the why behind it is because I just saw this huge gaping hole in the video game industry. And guys, when I was, when my generation, and I'm a Gen Xer, as they call us, when, when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, we didn't even have cable TV or uh, a channel changer. You want to know what the channel changer was? It was you. You'd have to get yeah, up in front of your couch and, and hit the button. That's right. You have to go up and turn the knob. That's who was the channel changer. So, so, you know, and so, but back then everybody played video games together my mom and my dad and my brother and my friends and no matter how old you are and the arcades were just blowing up so we'd go to the arcades families would go to the arcade games together and so this was a much different time you know and then even when i started in the industry late 80s early 90s there was still there wasn't internet you know multiplayer gaming meant everybody gathering around a tv and playing with you know playing together and then, then it wasn't until the late 90s, right? And you guys were around for that when, when now multi-gaming, multi multiplayer gaming in the 21st century now means a kid in a dark room with his headphones on, right? It's so true. I know a lot of people, like other podcasts have said, well, that's kind of a stereotype, but it really is true because what's it's the most true, popular though. game right now? Fortnite. What are most people playing it on? Uh, tablets, phones, computer PCs, screens. Online, yeah. Right, and they're just, they're isolated from each other with a headset on. Especially yeah, I mean, right I, mean, I mean, how many, think of like League of Legends, Dota 2, Warcraft, Overwatch, not a single, and those are the biggest multiplayer games in the world. Well, biggest multiplayer games PC in, in North America and Europe. But the, but that's the thing is that, you know, you, you think of all those big PC games, there's no, there's no couch co-op PC games. And that's, that's 20% of the video game, whole video game market right there. Uh, and then are there couch co-op games for the consoles? Absolutely there are, right? But, you know, but the thing that people like the disconnect that hardcore gamers sometimes have when they when they look at what we're doing and, and try to say, oh, couch co-op, you're an idiot. It already exists. The thing that that a lot of disconnect happens is that at, like the three of us right now who are talking, we're all hardcore gamers, right? Yes. And yes. we are. We, we are. You know, like you said, you got an Xbox, you got a Switch. Yeah, you're a hardcore gamer. OK, <laughs> you're not casual, you know. So, um. And so what a hardcore gamer thinks is casual, like let's say a game like Castle Crashers or Overcooked or maybe even Animal Crossing. Like 
we would say, oh, that's a casual game to us. What's casual to us is actually hardcore to a non-gamer. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that, and and it really made me think about that. Like, if I would give Animal Crossing to, like, my mom, for example, she would have a really hard time playing it. That's right. That's right. It's because we're used to games, so it's totally a different... Like, for us, it's like, oh, we're used to controlling characters in games, so it's no big deal to go to a, a more quote-unquote casual game but someone who's never played a game before is just like i have no idea what i'm doing that's right now let me ask you guys when you were growing up did you play games with your mom and dad like like how old are your parents they're they're like in their 40s 50s 50s yeah mine are in their 50s and i played games with my dad and my brother who's 10 years older than me gotcha now now your dad dad and your brother okay so when was the last time you played a game with your dad? Couch co-op? Yeah. For me, like 10 years ago, probably. Probably like eight years ago. Eight to 10 years ago. And yeah. was it the, the Wii maybe or something? Yeah, it was the, it was yeah, the Wii. Yeah, it was the Wii. Okay. Now, see, this is my whole point when people say, you know, what is Amico? Why is it different? This and that. What if I told you guys that you and your brother and your dad and me, and let's get mom in there as well. What if I could tell you that I'm wanting to bring the four of you together and play video games again? Would that make you happy? Like, does that warm your heart? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely that, does. My friends, that is what Amico is. That feeling that you have right now, that's what we're doing. So let me ask you something, Tommy, because this is this is a question that me and Jeremy were really thinking about when you're talking about the Amico. Do you think your message of catering to the casual gaming community is conflicting with catering to the retro gaming community? Because I see you talking to the retro gaming community and promoting the console and people who had the you know, television when they're growing up are looking to buy it. But you're also trying to sell the console to people who don't play video games at all or even never have. So is that message conflicting at all or what's going on with that? No, not at all. Uh, because the, the retro stuff is casual back then. Cause remember everybody play like Pac-Man is up, down, left and right. Miss Pac-Man, you know, like one of the biggest games that women played back in the day were centipede and Frogger. I didn't know right? that Frogger. Really? Oh, Huge, huge. You ask your mom if she remembers and if she ever played Frogger and you're going to blow your mind. She's like, oh my God, it's, you know, I'm guaranteed she was one of her favorite games back in the day. All right, I'll ask tomorrow. You, know, <laughs> you got to ask, you got to ask. Like, and so, and so because, and again, what's Frogger? Up, down, left, right. That's it, right? So, so if, if you had a game, a modern game and said, there's no buttons, and all you do is go up, down, left, right, you'd be like, oh, that well, that is a casual game. So yeah, so all of the retro games, and so that's, and this is a great question uh, from you guys too, because again, being, you know, being that you weren't around back then, you may not, you know, know that, you know, like, because you didn't live through it, right? Exactly, so, yeah, that's why yeah, we wanted to and, ask. And totally, and I love this question from you guys. Um, and so- Back in the day when video games first came out, whether it was Space Invaders or Asteroids or Missile Command, games were much more accessible to everyone back then. When you walked into an arcade in 1981 or 1982, 
there were just as many girls, young women as there were guys. Um, there were just as many moms as there were da dads and kids. It really was, you know, a gathering of people. And then, you know, places like Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza Place, like those were built around families gathering together. Oh, and let's order some pizza and let's play some skee-ball. And of course, all the video games, right? And so when people think of video games back in the 70s and 80s, they immediately think of families playing together, just like you would think of like a board game or a card game now. That's the way video games were looked at and valued back in the day, you know? And, and now, did younger kids play them more? Yes, absolutely, right? Um, but that's only because we had more time, right? You know, summer vacation, we're playing video games right. eight hours a day with my friends. You know, my mom had to like cook and clean and, you know, prepare dinner. And my dad was working during the day. But but at night, they would play, you know, play with us. Or on the weekends, we'd go out to, you know, Showbiz Pizza Place or a Chuck E. Cheese. And, it, and we all played video games till they closed. And, you know, so... So that's the thing. The game industry was so, so different back then. And there was no violence and there was no complexity. And there's, you know, and you guys know, you've, you've even alluded to it tonight where you're like, you take a game like Fortnite, like your mom isn't going to be playing Fortnite. No, exactly. Right. But back in the day, all the games were kind of accessible to everyone. You know, now there were some harder games. Like you take a game like Defender and you look at the button layout and go, holy crap. Oh yeah, like, even yeah, playing that, that today is hard. Yeah, right, I mean, that's some hard shit, yeah, right? absolutely. And so so they, there was those kind of like, you know, expert or harder style games out there for sure. But for the most part, again, I guarantee your mom probably played this shit out of uh, Mario brothers, <laughs> you know, like, you know, maybe she was in college or whatever, but, um, so, you know, so yeah, games were a lot more accessible and they were for everybody back then. And that's one of the things that the retro gamers, the older folks, the guys, my age and, and gals, when they hear about Amico, they're so excited about it because they remember what it was like back in those times and how accessible it was and how they played with their parents and how it was again think of like how the Wii was for you guys growing up right that's kind of what all gaming was back in the day where oh yeah mom would pick it up and you'd play with your like I'd come home from school guys and my mom was playing in television by herself <laughs> that's awesome I mean that was that was a very typical thing back in the day in terms of the development process of these games, Tommy, I know you mentioned before that you kind of like you have a QC process to these games. Can you go in detail about what that is and and how you're going to kind of separate your market uh, on the digital marketplace from like the Apple Play Store and the Google Play Store where there's just kind of a totally. bunch of shovelware? Because I think that your point that I've heard on other podcasts and correct me if I'm wrong you want to make things easy for people to see on the store and they know exactly what kind of game they're getting into and what kind of casual yeah. experience they're going to find. Can you go a little bit more in detail about that? 
Yeah, totally. And and by the way, there's games on our system that are not casual either, too. You know, like like you look at our Night Stalker game. My mom's not going to be playing that, you know. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so so we do we do cater to you know gamers as well too. But but yeah, the the whole uh, quality control thing and, and what makes us different from Apple Arcade and all this is that you know we're we're a closed system, right? So anyone can pretty much upload a game on Steam. Even like the Nintendo Switch, I mean, they have a thousand new games a year. Um, and 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 by the way, shovelware, holy crap! Like, how come people don't talk about that on the Switch? And, and I'm not trying problem. to put down the Switch. I've, I've, me and Jeremy have both complained about that. Like, if you holy go on the, crap. if the eShop is such a mess, you can't find any new it's, games it's on there. Horrible. And there's so much, and and it's like you find games for 14 cents. Like no joke, I saw a game for yeah. one penny last weekend. I did too. It's, and they're just random shovelware games. So you hope you spend a penny, and it gets on the top of the list. It's so crazy. And and so um, and so you know we don't want to have any shovelware on our system. And that was one of the problems with the Ouya as well. Is is that oh we let's just put a whole bunch of shit. And and for some reason. The industry, you know, has changed where quantity is more impressive than quantity. When the hell did that happen? And by the way, if you guys know you know the history of the gaming industry, at the end of 1983, going into 1984, the entire industry crashed. Why? Because there was so much garbage flooded in the market. Yeah. Right. Because there was and, cartridges that were like 200 games in one, but they were all crap and stuff like that. So, so. crap. It was just, it was just, they were games for selling for like 40 bucks. Again, back then, which was like a hundred dollars. And, and they were just totally slapped together pieces of shit, you know? And then they end up in the bargain bin for five bucks. And then people were like, well, why would I pay 40 bucks for a game when I can buy this one for five bucks? And then they take the $5 one home. It's like, Holy crap, this is shit. And then like, you know, companies like Atari were coming out with new sh- machines every other year. Hardware. You know, now it's usually a seven to eight year hardware cycle, right? Back then, it was like every two years, you had the Atari 2600, then the 5200, then the 7200. Then they were doing lines of the 400 and the 800 computers. And then Commodore 64 came out and then the Amiga came out and then Intellivision had Intellivision 2 and then the computer component and then and then ColecoVision and then holy shit <laughs> and then the Apple IIc and then did you have a TI-99 or a Timex Sinclair 1000 so much shit all coming out at the same time it was overwhelming and families to keep up with that so <sighs> crazy and then and, and, you know the numbers I mean I remember you know a big decision in my family was you know, should we buy Tommy a, a, a $800 Apple IIc? And that was a big deal for my parents, you know? And they saved up and they got me a computer because I was so into games and I, w- I wanted to be a programming and a designer. And, and, and they said, you know what, let's, let's, let's do this. And I so appreciated that. And it really helped to form, you know, the creative stuff that I do today sometimes. So, um, but yeah, it was, um, it was so different. So, so that's the thing is that we don't want to have mediocre crap on our machine. We want to go back, you know, to where, see the two biggest important things for me 
with our customers is value and trust. And the first time I come out with a mediocre game, that trust is broken. Boom, automatically gone, right? Because now in the back of their head, customers are gonna be saying, gosh, that last game I bought was kind of crap. Now you're, now you're a little gun shy about the next, eh, I'm not sure if I wanna buy this game or not. But if we deliver high quality stuff every time, then that trust builds. And so somebody might be thinking about a game, huh, let me see grandpa's coming over. He loves shuffleboard. I wonder, should I get this shuffleboard game? Well, yeah, it's in television. Every game is going to be great and fun. And, and so, boom, I'm going to get it. You know, so that's what we're trying to build, value and trust. You, you won't hear me ever talking about quarterly returns or, uh, you know, stock prices or blah, 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 this and that. And how, you know, what's our bottom line? And no, you hear me talk about fun. You hear me talk about value and trust. And, and, you know, the, the soul and the, the passion of the project, right? Because that's the most important thing. Money isn't the thing that is driving a television amico. It's not. Look, I'll be honest with you. I could have retired 10 years ago. I've made a lot <laughs> yeah. of money in my career, <laughs> you know, a lot of money. I don't have to be doing this. I'm doing it because I want to, and every single person, and by the way, the big person who were, who I, I was alluding to earlier that we're hiring, he retired from the video game industry 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So on <laughs> top, on top. And he just walked away because he was sick of, you know, kind of like where the industry was headed. And, and he's, and this in television, Amico, has sparked him so much that he called me up and he goes, man, I just want to congratulate. And he's a friend of mine, but he, I got to congratulate you on how amazing this is. I'm so passionate. I want you to do so well. I'm like, well, why don't you come and work with us? And he's like, he's like well, what? what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm hearing you talk about how passionate you are about this thing. And he's like, really? You'd like want me? I'm like, what do you mean want you? You're like the most famous guy in the freaking video game industry for Christ's sake. Oh, that's so cool. uh, I can't wait to hear who and it like, is. And he goes like, well, let me, let me talk to my uh, fiance about it. And, uh, and like the next morning he's like, I'm in, screw it. This is great. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so, and again, this guy who doesn't need money, doesn't need fame, fortune, nothing. And so we just want to create something beautiful and positive for the world and get gaming on the right track because it's gotten so far off track. All these games have become so complicated. Like they're so targeted to such a thin demographic. And then the problem with mobile where, okay, that's a broader audience. Yeah. 3 billion people playing mobile. I get it. Very broad. But are you kidding me? Mobile sucks. It does. It does. I mean, it's the up a mobile transactions, game. the loot boxes, the in-app purchases. The advertisements. The, the in-app advertising constantly. You want to download a game and you're not going to pay for it? Well, guess what? You're going to get pop-up windows. You're going to get advertisements. You're going to see your phone starting to slow down. What the hell happened? You know, 
This is insanity. Not only is mobile broken to the point where there's zero curation, so a thousand new games come out every week on 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 Apple and and uh, Android. And not only that, and then of course we talked about the freemium games, as they're called, free to play, which is crap because we know they're not. And then, but the worst part is every single accessible game. So hyper casual, edutainment, all these super accessible games, the 3 billion people are playing, it's all solitary. Everybody's becoming a zombie, putting their heads in their freaking phones. And we're tired of it. That's not what gaming was for. You look at what the definition of a game is. It goes back thousands of years, centuries, where people would show up to challenge each other right right yeah it was a communal thing and now gaming has become a solitary thing and yes i know there's couch co-op games on switch and playstation i know but on our system it's the focus every single game is couch co-op every single game pretty much can be played whether you're a hardcore gamer or a or a total noob right and so we just want to bring people together. We want to bring something positive to the world. We're the underdogs. We're like Rocky Balboa up in this bitch. Like people, I hope, even if they don't agree or like what we're doing, I don't know why, but if they would, um, at least root for us for crying out loud. Yeah, What's so I don't wrong? see why not and why people are being so critical, right? especially because like my little cousin, for example, I have some family who live in California and my little cousin is only eight years old. And sometimes when okay. she gets handed the iPad to play, like, let's say like a little mermaid game or something, there's full yeah. of advertisements and microtransactions yeah. that an eight year old can Terrible. accidentally pay for. That's so Terrible. wrong. Especially if it's like the cards linked up and stuff, the eight year old oh. just clicks it, you know. If the credit they card's linked up, they don't know what they're spending because it's just they see, oh, I want coins, they click it. And that's just so morally wrong how that's that's what they're doing for these kids' games on mobile. It's true. It's and and yeah, are there things that parents can put into place? Yes. Are they are they kind of complex to figure out? Kinda, because they don't really want you to turn it on. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They don't want you to know about. Do all it. the parents know? No, they don't. Not not every parent knows that that's even possible. So exactly. That's the one thing I like about the Amicos that there's no microtransactions. Nope. None of it. None of that garbage. Buy a game, it's yours forever. I love that. Totally. Totally. So going to your parameters of quality controlling these games right because you're you you made a, a good statement which i love hearing that you want to make sure that every game on your store is 100 percent great 100 percent fun what is your process to quality control these games are you doing like focus groups are you personally yes, playing each game that. how are you doing yes yeah i mean I'm, I'm personally taking hand in every single design uh for for all the games as well uh, I'm the audio director on all the games. So, so if these games come out and, and, and they're crap, then I will take full 100% blame. Uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, that, that being said, we have, we've surround, our team is surrounded with the greatest game makers the world has ever seen. Right. And so that's, again, that's the thing that makes us different from you know, the failures of like Atari or Ouya or, or things like that is that we are game makers. 
like right before I uh, dialed into you guys, you know, I was on an hour long call with our vice president of production. His name is Jason Enos. Jason Enos was the producer of all of the Metal Gear Solid games, all of the Silent Hill games. He was the person who brought Dance Dance Revolution from Japan to the rest of the world, Castlevania, Contra. He was at Konami for 12 years. Then he went over to EA for a couple years, worked in the EA kids department. And then he went over to Namco for eight years. And this is a kid who started working in the video game industry when he was a teenager working as a games tester for Sega and Tom Kalinske. And so, and Tom Kalinske, who was the president of Mattel Electronics back in 1979 when they launched in television. So, so, um, you know, this is the, this is the kind of, level of quality now do you think jason knows a thing or two about how to produce a video game absolutely Hell yeah. <laughs> absolutely you know and and he's just one of the many that we have on our team so so i guess my point being is that is that the folks who are who are at the top making the decisions producing designing taking part in the creation of course, the developers, you know, need to get most of the credit, of course, right? Um, but, you know, we're, we, we truly partner 100% with every developer. See, we handpick the developers. We, we don't have an open system. We are a curated system. And every game that comes out has to go through us and has to be co-created by us. For the most part, right? Now, have there been uh, developers that have come to us with like almost complete games saying, hey, how, what would you think of this for the Amico? And, and we look at it and go, holy crap, this is awesome. Yeah. Hey, by the way, could you change this, 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 and this? And maybe can I give you some audio stuff? And our art director has uh, a thing or two to maybe, uh, you know, a, a direction. Maybe we can do this. Can we make it for our controller so that, you know, so we'll still give a lot of input and suggestions. And, um, but that's the thing is that, you know, we have the most creative and, uh, you know, track record of people who've worked on the most incredible hardware from the Xbox to the PlayStation to the Nintendo Wii. Those people who created those systems are part of our team. Those people who created the biggest selling games ever of all time. The guy who brought Tetris to the world. He's the guy who brought it from Russia and he showed it to Hank Rogers in 1983 at a CES show. He was the founder of Spectrum Holobyte in the early 80s. His name's Phil Adam. Phil Adam is also the guy who did the very first deal with BioWare, the guy who you know went on to make Mass Effect. Phil Adam did some of the first deals with a little company in Irvine called Silicone and Synapse in Irvine, California, who later changed their name to Blizzard Entertainment. Phil <laughs> Adam awesome. was the guy who did Crash Bandicoot, did the deal between Crash Bandicoot a first name company called Naughty Dog, and they did a deal with Universal. Phil Adam was the senior vice president of Interplay for for 12 years and then became president of Interplay and then helped to take Interplay public. Phil Adam 
is our senior vice president at Intellivision. So, you know, these are the, he's been in the industry 40 years, knocks it out of the park every single time. Yeah, you even have a NASA engineer who was on the Mars rover project, right? He was, a, he was an engineer on the Mars rover project. Um, we have another engineer, hardware engineer, who his last uh, project was the um, the uh, Black Hawk helicopter project. Oh, wow. He yeah, did the famous the, Black Hawk helicopter. Yeah, project. he did a lot of the hardware design for the camera system uh, in there. We have guys like who are on nuclear submarines uh, in the military. And we so so when you bring like NASA and military, like the highest level, smartest, brightest engineers in the world. You bring that group of people together with engineers who've designed all the greatest video game hardware systems, and you bring those people together, because that was always my thing, is like, I don't want to just just have video game people, but what if we were to create, you know, what if we were to bring in some of the brightest, you know, technical minds who maybe don't, who, who will think outside the box, right? Um, that maybe that video game folks maybe wouldn't have thought of. And they, this kind of, uh, you know, this, this kind of thinking and level of, uh, of, you know, intelligence and experience and you meld them together and, oh my gosh, like, and we haven't even told people most of the stuff that the machine can do that stuff. We have so many surprises still to come. I originally, and Jeremy was as well, we were very skeptical about sure. the controller because we sure. were worried for we'll get to earthworm gym 4 in a little later but playing mm-hmm. like a 2d platformer like earthworm gym 4 on that touch screen that capacitive yep. touch screen we thought was a little would probably be a little bit uncomfortable but the fact right. that you're adding those buttons that you could put over the screen <laughs> we're yep. really excited for that because having an actual button that you could press is way more um precise than a touch yeah. screen especially for a platformer that the precision's so important so that's a really I, great move on your I, part like i gotta tell you guys and and again until you've you've played it so so well first of all when people you know sometimes they you know a, again a hardcore gamer might look at our controller and they might say well how the hell am i going to play call of duty on that and the answer is you're not um <laughs> you know so don't look at our controller as you know, a normal controller because of, because we're designing all of the games around the controller. But that being said, I want you guys to think back and think about all of the best 2d platform games you've ever played. Okay. And you guys are a little younger, but, but I, I got a feeling if you're talking about things like earthworm Jim, I mean, that game came out before you were born. So, so I I'm, I'm getting a sense that you guys know stuff that, you know, you're, you're historians a little bit and, you know, huge fans of all things, video games, whether you were born before or after it. Right. Um, So, so when you think of the greatest 2d side scrolling platform games in your life, you might think of things like like Castlevania yes. or Mega Man, Metro, Super Mario World, Super Mario, um, Earthworm Jim, Aladdin, whatever. You know, the, you think of all those games, right? Sonic. Now, every single – or Sonic the Hedgehog. Every single one of those games that I just mentioned, 2D side-scrolling platform games, right, were on the NES, the Super Nintendo – and the Sega Genesis. 
correct? Correct. I'd say correct. that would probably be the height of the greatest. And again, there was some stuff on Turbo Graphics and stuff like that. But but for the most part, NES, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis have the greatest side-scrolling platform games. Period. End of story. I don't think anyone would argue with. No, that. I would okay. agree. Now, and some would say that the greatest, again, let me, I'll just repeat them again. Mega Man, Castlevania, Metroid, Mario Brothers. Okay. Probably some of the four greatest side-scrolling platform games. Mm -hmm. Those are all on the NES, correct? Correct. Correct. Now, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to envision in your mind what the NES controller looked like. You got it? I got it. Mm -hmm. I knew this is where you're going. Cause now that I think <laughs> about it, yeah, that controller is not, not all that complex. Yeah, so you're right. It's not. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was kind of like a rectangle, right? Sa same thing mm -hmm. with the Genesis and the super Nintendo. I mean, they had a little more curves to it, but you know, but, but you look at the NES control. Okay. So it was kind of a rectangle. Um, it, it had a D pad and it had two buttons. Right. Right. What's the shape of our controller? <laughs> right? uh, so, so, for, so when people say to me, again, they're they're so wrapped, and I get it. I'm not I'm not like you know putting anyone down because, but but it, it but it's funny, right? Because when you when you think about modern controllers, and you think about two grips, and dual analog sticks, and shoulder buttons, and now. PlayStation says, Hey, let's put more buttons on the back for your two fingers that you, you know, let's just make every finger a button. Um, but when you think about 2d side-scrolling platform games, our controller is way closer That's to a what great point. 2d side-scrolling <laughs> platform games were played on because i was before you made us do that that uh you know imagination of what the controller what we remember the controller was i was worried that the controller might be uncomfortable like this you know if it's like a joy con because i find the sideways joy cons are very uncomfortable but you're right oh, if it's course. the same size as a super nintendo controller almost like that's that's the perfect size for 2d platforming and, and let me, I'm going to turn on my camera. I know people won't be able to see this, but I'm going to show you guys. Okay. Um, so this is the back of the controller, right? Right. So there's the front, you know, and see the back here. We spent months making this perfect. Wow. See, that is more, that is a lot more comfortable than the Joy-Con. Yeah. So, so, so when you put, look at, look at your fingers. And, and again, if you can see like, it's not just like the same thing all around. See how this juts out more on the corners, how they flare out there. Boom, boom, they flare. And if you look, they're deeper as well. You know, so your fingers fit right in here. And you see these corners, you know, they go right. Look at that. Right? Yeah, just like a original Nintendo controller. Right? But, but well, better though. Better because though. This, you know, the, the <laughs> Nintendo controller was... Sure was hard yeah and 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 hard edged and then look at this check this out do you see how these flare out like a bar of soap almost see how it curves down like that oh yeah so so when you hold it it's you get more of a grip see that 
Right. It looks really comfortable, actually. It does. Now that I'm like it, getting it, a, it really is. When you hold it in your hand, it's like it's like butter. Like it's and then and then here's the fun part for me that a lot of people don't talk about. But you see these buttons here. Yes. We spent months uh, on different all different combinations, and you see how the end. See how this. Let me see. See how this side right here how it flares out more. Yes. Oh yeah. It's yeah, little, yeah. It's a little higher. That's because when you put, when you put your fingers here like this, it doesn't like slide off. So it's a little, it's just a little, a couple of degrees, but it makes all the difference in the world. And again, if you can see this, it fits so perfect. The buttons fit right into your fingers perfectly it's because think about think about the buttons on a playstation they're like they're like dome shaped yeah but but that's not how your finger is your finger should fit into the button oh, that's cool. like a little comfortable dish and then so so yeah so that's the big thing that that people and again i'm going to be honest with you guys when when you know, so if you're using this like a D-pad, like you would, and again, I can put a button, I can put a physical button here and a physical button there, and I can, I can split the screen in the center so the left side of the screen is jump and the right side of the screen is fire, let's say, right? Honestly, I get used to this. I actually like hitting the screen more than I do the button. Really? And, and yeah, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you, see, because we're so used to buttons. Mm -hmm. We're so used to buttons. But think about it. When you press in a button, so the speed of your of the force of your your thumb or whatever going down, and then it connects, then the button spring brings it back up. Um, we're doing slow motion now. And then you have to do it again, and you press down again, and it makes contact. And then it comes back up again before you can press it down again. So, you know, so when you're hitting buttons, you're pressing, 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 pressing. But what you'll find when you're hitting a screen, there's no down and up. No so, resistance at all. Yeah. So I actually, when you're firing and you want to fire super quick, the screen just hitting a, a, a hard surface and, and having it shoot out is freaking awesome. It's pretty awesome. So, so although people can decide if you want that button on there, cause that's how you feel. And that's how I felt at first, but then at the, at the, by like, by now I'm just like, eh, I don't want to use the buttons. I'm just, you know, because this whole side of the screen is one big button and I can just hit it wherever I want. I don't even have to be on the thing. I could hit it to the top, to the bottom, to the middle, to the left, to the right. And the whole thing becomes a button. Do you so, find it in your testing right now with um, your focus groups that they're using the buttons or they're using that touchscreen? They're using the touchscreen, touch especially screen. the younger, the younger, the kid that, you know, they prefer the touchscreen only. That's and they, interesting. Like, yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. And again, I think everything's going to be different, but, but now that I've explained it to you, you can maybe start to think about it in your mind and go, huh, yeah, it actually would be quicker, wouldn't it? Now, now what about <laughs> yeah. the motion controls, though? Because 
one one thing yeah. that I think a lot of people say is that oh the the gaming industry they've moved on from motion controls right like the that was the I Wii that was two thousand six or two thousand eight yeah. and we're done with that it's a gimmick blah 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 do you feel that your motion controls are going to make your gaming experiences better rather than just yeah be a gimmick? Oh, absolutely a hundred a hundred percent and now uh, and I will say this though you know I'd say maybe. 15 to 20% of our library is motion controlled. So it's not every game. Right. It's, it's only a handful. Game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's mostly like recreational sports games. So bowling, darts, pool, um, cornhole, horseshoes. Um, but I got to tell you guys, I'll tell you what's super cool. You're playing breakout. Have you seen our breakout uh, video on our YouTube channel? I don't know the name specifics. That's where I'm. I don't okay, gotcha. So the the breakout game. Go on our YouTube channel. Check out breakout. It's the one where you you're breaking the block. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah, and it looks all like old school looking. Yes, and stuff. yes. And so, and so that's a perfect example where you're controlling here. I'm going to turn my camera on, but but you're using your thumb as you're using your thumb to control and again it's the whole screen you don't have to like be on a certain line or anything you can use the whole screen with your thumb to move that up and down the the uh you know the the paddle is up and down so you're using the screen and wherever your thumb is on the screen it's just smooth as silk right it's up and down but so and so i use my right hand like this and then when I hit it, I can also go like this with the motion control. <laughs> nice, yeah. And it'll curve the ball if I want. So it puts English on it if I want. So if I'm if I'm trying to hit like a like a, a one cube right up in the corner, and it's like, and I and I'm having troubles getting to it, and I and I I I bounce it off the thing, and then I see it's not going, and I can go oh, and I can like give it a little English and, and have it go towards the thing. Same thing with Pong. Like you're playing Pong and, and you, you can get this pickup that gives you English and then you can like, like, you know, like shove it and then throw a curveball at your opponent. And they're like, Whoa, crap. You know? So your motion so controls, are they like the, the Wii motion plus, or are they just like a little wiggle and it does something? Cause the Wii motion plus is yeah, like directional. I, like you can do it diagonal verticals like a little forward stab motion or is this just like you shake it and it does an action yeah it's it's got a gyroscope and an accelerometer okay so, yes i couldn't think of the right terms but so yes one, okay yeah, so the one thing that the we had that we don't is remember it, it had that rf bar yeah bar that you oh what a pain up. in the ass that was to set up tommy <laughs> right yeah and where the hell did you ever put that oh, right god and, yeah. and but why that was important, what that did was it allowed your Wii controller, the Wii Mote, to act as a pointer on screen. So that we don't have, but we have everything else. So yeah, so you know, it 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 you know, it can tell how fast we're throwing something, it could tell the direction we're throwing it in you know, tilting left, tilting right, tilt up, tilt down, and velocity and speed. And so for games like bowling and cornhole and horseshoes, that's all you really need. Have you found that there was any 
moment in development where you wish there was the ability to point at the screen like that or do you feel like it's totally not necessary no, i mean i mean you know if i could like you know maybe like it'd be nice to do like a you know a shooting game like duck hunt kind of style but but you know so you'd use something like that but no, you know, not, not really. I mean, not yet anyway, you know, um, because again, we have, because we have the, the touch screen. So if you've seen, if you go on our YouTube page and check out our missile command demo, that's the game we where, talked about on the podcast. Yeah. That's, that's cool. How you do yeah. that. Yeah. Wherever your thumb goes, it, it's kind of like, you know what, you know what it is? It's like, um, on your laptop, you know how you have your, uh, your, your touchpad. Mm -hmm. It's just like that. It's exactly like that. Think of it like that, except it's a glass. Well, it's it's like an acrylic, really super smooth touchpad. And so you don't when you're when you're using your touchpad, you're not looking at it. You know, it's you're natural. looking at the screen and you can see the pointer going all around. Well, that's exactly what we got on our controller. It's pretty freaking cool. Honestly, everything that I feel like I in my head when we first talked about it that I didn't like about the controller, now seeing it and like talking about it more, I actually really like the controller. So <laughs> I think I think that's part of um how you guys are having the yeah. It's like you guys are your plan is to like have people try it out in stores and things like Absolutely. that. It's so important. That's our our whole go to market strategy is getting it in people's hands. Period. End of story. And by the way, the woman who is the senior executive vice president of marketing for Nintendo. She's the woman who worked on, you know, launching the Super Nintendo, the GameCube, the N64, the Wii. She did not do the Wii U. She left after that. So you can't blame her for that. Um, she's the person who launched the Nintendo DS. She's the person who launched the whole entire Pokemon franchise to the world. I see Pedro Shanks got his uh, his Pikachu. Yep. On his, <laughs> I'm a big uh, Pokemon fan. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, she was the person who introduced that to the to to the. Well, I say the world. It's not the world. She, she's the person who introduced it to North America. She was the head of marketing, and she launched Pokemon. Wow. So, you know, she works with us. Her name's Perrin Kaplan. So, you know, so for the woman who had so much success. Do you think she knows a thing or two that could help us out? <laughs> you know, Absolutely. So. I think Pokemon and all those consoles were a little bit successful. So I'm you sure know, she and, knows. And again, that's the thing that just blows me away. Like that the, that the haters out there just completely ignore, like they're just so ignorant to say like, you know, Oh, these guys don't know what we're doing. Oh really? Because we have 600 years of video game experience uh, that says we do. <laughs> And that concludes part one of the Generation Zen collaboration with Tommy Tellerico. Be sure to stay tuned for part two as there's a lot of great stories coming in the next one. And Tommy shares some really, really insightful industry advice in the gaming industry and how he became successful. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening and stay safe.